If you're just getting used to the Bible, just familiar with the Bible, a quick review. There are two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the history of God's people and the story of God's people. The New Testament is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the story of the new church after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. The letters to the church refer to several books of the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul or other apostles or followers followers of Jesus to other churches in the area. The ones that we're covering are mainly the main letters written by Paul. Paul at first was a persecutor of Christians. He was converted, came to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and became one of the most important figures in the new church, the first century church. He was a church planter, and so he traveled all around the Holy Roman area that we hear about in the Bible, and he planted churches. He and others along with him. Sometimes other people kind of get the short end of the stick, but Paul always had people with him. And most of the letters to the church that we attribute to Paul, if you read the first few verses, are actually Paul and someone else, or Paul and a few other people that wrote the letters. Nonetheless, Paul was a church planter. When he would leave a church, he would leave elders. He would raise up leaders, and then he'd go back to Jerusalem, generally was where he was sort of based. And then he would communicate with those churches. He often, on subsequent journeys, would visit churches that he already planted. Plus, people would come to Jerusalem on pilgrimages and tell him what's going on in the different churches. And so Paul would often write letters back to the churches that he had planted or he and his buddies had planted. We know that a lot of the letters that Paul wrote were addressing specific issues in those churches. Sometimes they were also including general issues, but very often there were specific issues. And we know this because in some of Paul's letters, he refers to letters that he that had been written to him. He'll say things like, in your letter you said this, and now I'm responding. Even though we don't have our hands on those letters that Paul received from the churches, we know that he was responding to specific things. So those are generally the two parts of the letters from Paul and the other apostles. General things, addressing issues or, uh, uh, or giving encouragements or admonishments, and sometimes there were specific issues. The last couple of weeks, you talked about Galatians and Philippians. Some of the major themes that you heard about in Galatians and Philippians had to do with grace. Paul realized as he was journeying along that many of the churches were falling back into a major heresy or a false teaching. And it was this. People started to believe again that what saved them was what they could do. They had to follow a certain set of rules. They've got to do this and got to do this and got to do this. And Paul, very often in his letters, even if it was a small portion, he was saying, have you so quickly forgotten? It's not about what you've got to do, it's what you get to do. So the last couple weeks you've been hearing about those things. Life by the Spirit, the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the Spirit. But again, that no one is right by the law. Well, this week we're talking about Ephesians, the book that Paul wrote, or the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. We have a little map up here. You can see where Ephesus is. Um, the, it's it's in, right in the middle there. Right north of that is sort of the province of Galatia. Um, Galatian churches, when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, he was actually writing to a whole bunch of churches in Galatia. Um, the the book of Ephesians is written specifically to the main church in Ephesus, but there were probably other kind of satellite churches in Ephesus as well. So 
he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And again, he had been their church planter and was addressing some specific things and some more general things. He was reminding them mainly of their identity. You see some of the major themes of Galatians and Philippians show up again, specifically the idea of grace. Ephesians 2.8, if you ever took Lutheran confirmation or you've been around a Lutheran church, you've heard the hallmark verse of the Lutheran faith that we're saved by grace. Chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Many of you maybe had to memorize that in Lutheran confirmation. So Paul addresses that again. He also addresses in the letter to the Ephesians issues of unity. There maybe were problems with division. It's pretty clear. He addresses some issues of families and households. He addresses living as a child of the light, putting off the sinful nature, addressing things going on. But there's a final note in Ephesians that gives us perspective to the whole letter. And it goes like this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That's where I want to go today. Because finally, after all is said and done in Ephesians, what Paul is saying is this. After all the talk about identity, what Paul is saying is this. I need to remind you, church at Ephesus, that there is a spiritual battle going on for your life. There is a battle going on for your, the freedom that God wants you to live in. Oh, and by the way, it's not a battle with, with horses and swords and arrows and things that you're used to, but a spiritual one against dark evil forces that pretty much hate you. Sincerely, Paul. I mean, that's how he closes the letter. Look out. Love you, Paul. He's saying there's something bigger here. After all this teaching that you're going to get it, you're going to get it. I just need to remind you and encourage you. But after all that, you need to realize that this is hard because there's a spiritual battle going on that's so much bigger than you can ever imagine. There's a fight going on in this world. And when Christians are in the world, they're in the conflict. Sometimes we use the term spiritual warfare. It's often used to describe that spiritual battle that's talked about all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, with Jesus, with Paul, certainly in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. But spiritual warfare can be a dangerous term because sometimes in the past it's gotten equated with political moves that have been taken in history with wars or with regimes doing evil things in the name of a spiritual battle. But if we actually reclaim what spiritual warfare or the battle in the spiritual realm is, according to the Bible, we can't ignore that there's a spiritual fight. Some people go the opposite direction and say, oh, there's no such thing as spiritual warfare. That's all just kind of for charismatic or Pentecostal churches. We can't do that. Spiritual warfare, spiritual battle is real and it's biblical. Battle, war, fight, conflict language refers to the fact that there is an evil one, an enemy of God, and he has influence this side of heaven. Satan is called a bunch of things in the Bible, but some of them give us perspective about the power that he has. In Ephesians 2.2, Satan is called the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or the ruler of those who are disobedient. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, meaning this tangible world. 
Satan has power in this tangible world, Paul is saying. John 14, Jesus is saying this to his followers. I will no longer talk much with you, right before he was crucified. I will no longer talk much with you, for the prince of this world is coming. The prince of this world. Does that freak you out a little bit, that Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world? He's not the king, but he's the prince. He has power in the earthly world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Paul says, in their case, meaning those that are deceived, the God of this world has blinded their minds. The God of this world, little g God, but God of this world. Later in Revelation, Jesus is talking to those that are still in the world. And he says, I know where you're living, where Satan's throne is. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil prowls around. The devil is here. The devil is real and has power in this earthly realm. And he's active. And see, Paul's clearly affirming that fact that Christians do and will confront Satan's power here on earth. Lutherans generally get a little uncomfortable when we talk about spiritual warfare and the battle of Satan. And I don't know why that is. Maybe because, again, there are some traditions that have turned it into sort of this um, odd, inaccessible thing. But maybe it's because Lutherans, maybe it's because the devil is mean and Lutherans don't like mean people. We don't know what to do with them other than to you know, not eat what they brought to the potluck or something like that. But Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, after which the Lutheran Church is named, Martin Luther knew something about the devil. He was very familiar with the power of the devil. There's even a legend that says that once Luther was so tormented by the presence of the devil when he was translating the Bible into German that he, he, he threw an ink pot, an inkwell, at the devil. And you can still see the spot on the wall in the Wartburg Castle. You can't. It's a legend. But all over Luther's writings. It's very, very clear that he was tormented by a real presence of the devil. And again, some people who are uncomfortable with that say, well, maybe he had some sort of, you know, mental illness or what. You know, there were many periods in Luther's life where he said, this is real. I'm not crazy. Read the Bible. The devil is after those which are doing good in the name of Jesus Christ. Luther knew that the devil made himself known in a couple of distinct ways. First of all, through the supernatural. And I'm talking about demons and deceptive spirits and unnatural works and events. They're real. Biblically, we have the casting out of demons. We have Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Satan specifically tempting others, manifesting himself to others. The devil entering Judas to betray Jesus. But these didn't just stop in biblical times. They happen all the time now, whether it's with our ministry partners in Africa or right here at City Branch and West Des Moines and North Branch, there are people sitting around you that have experienced the presence of the devil, that have experienced this spiritual warfare. And it can look like a couple of different things. It can look like actual manifestations of the devil's presence, or oftentimes it can stem from deception through people allowing the devil to take over their imagination or their fears. This is why it's dangerous to dabble in a lot of things like ghost stories and witchcraft and the paranormal. These things open our minds and open our hearts to the devil's power. So just avoid these things. Not because we're Christian prudes and everyone that wants to celebrate Halloween or talk about witches is, is evil. No. But it's why you see concern coming around Halloween when it comes to Christians. And, well, how much of this stuff do we want to open our minds and our hearts to? It's not because we're Christian prudes. It's because it's real. 
It's because the devil does have power. The devil does like to deceive our mind and say, oh yeah, ghosts and goblins and paranormal. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's real. That's me. Here I am. So we say, avoid those things. The Bible says, don't be deceived by the powers and the deception of this world. Just stay away from it. Here's one thing that's clearly dangerous. Just stay away. I often wonder why in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? They have the entire Garden of Eden, the entire world pretty much. And they're told, stay away from this one thing, the tree, right? Stay away from the one thing, the tree. Where do they hang out? By the tree. Just why didn't they go bowling? Instead, just stay away from the tree. And so the Bible's saying, Paul is saying, here's this evil thing. Just flee from it. Just stay away from it. Avoid those places where Satan wants to have power, where Satan gets a foothold in our imagination. And watch out for that with your kids as well. Where are their minds going? Where are you allowing the devil to say, yeah, I'm going to scare you. I'm going to deceive you. Have your mind open to these things. So Luther knew about the supernatural. The Bible's also clear that it's not just the supernatural. The devil's presence is also manifest in spiritual warfare in the deception and and pain of our everyday lives really in the tragedies of our everyday lives illness and death and unemployment and pain and broken marriages and addictions and he also works through us giving into the temptations to do evil things to not do what we should do The devil's plaything is sin. He says, sin, I like that. I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to tempt you. I'm going to work in you. I'm going to show you the things that you want to do in the flesh and tell you, eh, that's okay. The temptation of the devil is spiritual warfare, not just supernatural, but everyday temptation and deception of good versus evil. And that whole epic battle of good versus evil is so real that it sort of bleeds into how we see the world. The classic good versus evil is the plot of any really good, you know, fairy tale or book or movie or story, TV show. The idea that the, you know, there's an underdog that fights the battle and uh, that they, they represent something bigger than themselves. They're responsible for saving the world. It's a great storyline. Like, for example, to give you an idea of how this bleeds into our culture, our everyday lives, I'm going to give you a little quiz, all right? I'm going to give you a good character, and you give me the evil character, okay? You ready? Little Red Riding Hood, the big bad wolf, right? Okay, I don't have slides for the rest of these. I'm just going to read these to you. See if you can if you can get, I'll give you the good, you give me the evil, and we'll see how this permeates our culture. Okay, Superman, Lex Luthor, you got it. Snow White, the Wicked Witch, the Witch of Some Permutation, that's right. Batman. Joker, Dr. Jekyll, right? Cinderella, Wicked Stepmother, uh-huh, Bob Cratchit, Scrooge, yeah, some literary people here, or Muppets people, um, the Minnesota Wild Hockey Team, that's right, any other team, you got it, Eric, um, uh, they won last night, thank you very much, um, Dorothy, yeah, uh-huh, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, the dark side. Okay, He-Man. Skeletor, that's right. Children of the 80s. Also children of the 80s, Austin Powers. Dr. Evil. Mark, you've gotten almost all of these. Nice work, man. You even got the pinky, Dr. Evil. Okay, uh, the Vikings. Packers, that's their ISU. No, never mind, I won't go there. Nebraska, Nebraska. <laughs> that's right. They got cleaned up this weekend, didn't they? Yeah, sorry about that. 
So this epic, this epic battle, yeah, it's fun, it's good stories, but this epic battle of good versus evil is such a part of our social DNA that there's a danger of forgetting the spiritual truth about good versus evil, about spiritual warfare, because we have our own ideas about how good versus evil should go, right? When we misunderstand spiritual warfare because of the culture around us, when we go too far into the spiritual warfare discussion, we can fall into a couple traps. And the first one is this. The first trap of spiritual warfare is over-spiritualizing things. This happens a lot in Christian communities. Over-spiritualizing means that we're blaming everything on the spiritual battle. Remember the church lady from Saturday Night Live? No matter what anybody would say, she'd be like, could it be Satan? That's over-spiritualizing. It's blaming everything on the spiritual battle. Everything is an attack. Is Satan, is Satan willing to, and, and ready to attack us in every little detail of our lives? Absolutely. He loves it. But sometimes it's not. We have to be discerning before we call something spiritual warfare. Some people take this so far as, well, I was driving down the, the freeway and my car died, and I'm sure it was an attack of Satan. Well, no, you just didn't fill up with gas. Or, or I went out on the patio this morning and all my, my flowers were dead and I'm sure it was the demons that killed them. And No, you didn't bring your plants in and it froze overnight. What I'd like to say is don't blame Satan when it's just you being dumb. Don't give him more credit than he's due. The danger is when we don't take responsibility for ourselves or our walk or our choices and instead play a victim of spiritual attack, we're giving Satan more power than he deserves. And he's going up there like, well, I didn't do that, but I'll take credit for it. And he raises his power and the world says he has more power. So don't over-spiritualize balance what spiritual warfare is about another mistake of taking spiritual warfare too far that paul talks about is even a little more dangerous and that's this we let the spiritual battle scare us into thinking that we're responsible for it we fall into either fear or arrogance because we think that it's us against evil i or my spouse and i or my small group and i or my church and i have to fight the evil one Well, of course, we're part of the spiritual battle, but it's not up to you. That's the difference between the culture's idea of good and evil and the Bible's idea of good and evil. It's not us, the underdogs, against evil. Oh, we're underdogs, for sure, when we don't have Jesus Christ. But because we do have Jesus Christ, here's the good news that isn't in the movies. The war is already won. The battle isn't yours, it's God's. The battle isn't mine, it's God's. The battle isn't Lutheran Church of Hopes, it's God's. And he's already won the war. Colossians 2.15 says this, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing them over them at the cross. Jesus won. He already killed death. John 16, I have said this to you, Jesus says to his followers, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has already won. This side of heaven, the battle is still going on, but when it comes to death and eternity, the battle is already won. Paul takes the whole letter of Ephesians to say, God has already won. Here's what you're dealing with, Ephesians. Let's talk about it. It's very real. We've got to talk about sin. We've got to talk about unity. We've got to talk about your families. 
But take heart, God has won. He wants to tell them that, 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 that they, that we belong to him, that they, that we are part of the kingdom of light rather than the kingdom of darkness. There needs to be no fear when it comes to the spiritual battle, when it comes to the reality of the spiritual battle. He says you are strong, you are mighty in the power of the Lord. You're armed, not through your own religiosity, not through your own stuff that you got to do, not because you're in the right small group or the right church or because you have the the, the most powerful teaching in the whole wide world that talks about power all the time. No, because God has already won. And you might say, well, power, I kind of like that. I feel that every week when I go home from church. I've got my Hope t-shirt on, I've got my bumper sticker, and I feel kind of fuzzy and powerful like I've had an energy drink. And that's good. That's good. It's okay to be part of the Hope community and to come to church. And and that's why we make Hope sweatshirts and t-shirts. You can be like, I'm part of a community and I'm bold about, you know, who I am in my faith. And you can leave worship after being in community. And you do. You have that boost. I love that. But if that's all you think the power of God is about, you're so underestimating what God has for you. You're so underestimating what Paul means when he says power, what Jesus means when he says, I give my power to you. The message at the end of Ephesians is buckle up. You have the power of the creator of the universe. You have God-sized power against the enemy. Not wimpy magic charm power or emotional high power, but dead-raising power. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In the original language, the word be strong comes from the Greek endunamo, dunamis, which we get the word dynamite from. So he's saying, have explosively strong power in the Lord. And the words, the, the strong power, the mighty power of the Lord, there are also translations that are a little bit closer that say have kind of explosively strong power in the sovereign strength and the dominion of God. Our language is so narrow, but when you look at what Paul was actually saying, he was like, this is, this is explosive power. Nothing can stop the power of God. He has might and dominion, not power oppressive might and dominion like we think of here on earth, but loving dominion and all controlling omnipotent power because he wants to save the world. Check this out, what he does for us. Ephesians chapter one, same letter. Paul is saying this about power. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know. Pause. Paul's saying, because God's so powerful, he's given you the ability to know this, colon, verse 19, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So what Paul is saying is, I want more than anything for you to know the power that you have, which is the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. You get what he's saying there? The power that he's giving you is the power that Jesus has risen from the dead. Skip forward to chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who was rich in mercy, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, Ephesians chapter 1 says. That means at the right hand of God, the one sitting at the right hand of the king, meant that he shared the power and authority of the king. So we know Jesus is there. And Paul just said, oh yeah, by the way, you're seated with him. We're seated with him. We have the power of Jesus Christ given to us by God. It's so much more than, ah, I have a little kind of emotional high after church on Sunday. Yeah, you do. That's great. Share it, invite people to come and see, but it reminds you that you tapped into that power which is so much greater than we can ever ask or imagine. It's only available through Jesus Christ, though, not through the stuff that we got to do. We get to have the power of Jesus Christ, and he hands it to us. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is summoning his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to me, he says, and now I'm giving it to you. So you have the power and authority and wisdom and courage and power to go out and tell people, hey, there's good news. There's there's good news. And I want to tell you about it and I'm going to be courageous about it and fie on Satan because he doesn't have any power over me. You have the right to do boldly in the name of Jesus Christ what he asks and what he commands and what you get to do in him. And what's more is he says, you'll do more than I'm able to do. You'll do more than I'm able to do. Go to the next screen for a second. He says this in John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Jesus is telling his followers, I did some funky stuff, but you will do even greater things than me. And you think, well, that sounds kind of blasphemous. Greater than Jesus? Jesus should read his Bible more. This can't be right. Jesus is saying, you, because you have access to people and times and places and opportunities and situations and relationships that he didn't have in his 33 years on earth, you will do even greater things than Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? And he says, it's because of my identity. I'm just letting you do it. I'm telling you, go do it because it's in my name. You have the authority. Go. A couple of weeks ago, I was up in Minnesota and I uh, got to see my grandma who is um, 93. She's a tough broad and she's tough because for a while she was in jail. She likes to say, my grandpa who has passed away now was the sheriff of Carleton County in Northern <coughs> Minnesota for about 25 years. And they actually lived in the jailhouse. That's how it was at the time. So my grandma and my grandpa lived in the jailhouse and my dad and my aunt grew up in jail. And so my grandma was the cook for all of the prisoners and had to sort of help around the, the jailhouse. And uh, so she had to be pretty tough. She talked about the fact that there were stretches of time where my grandpa was away and she was in charge of two little kids and all the prisoners and cooking and all this sort of thing. And so she had to be pretty tough. She, she told us that um, she actually made friends with the prisoners because she was very logical and thought, well, if there's any trouble, I'd rather have them like me than hate me. <laughs> so she was tough. Well, as it was with most families at the time, the, my grandpa, they didn't have a personal family car. The only vehicle that they had was the sheriff's car, the squad car. So occasionally, my grandma had to drive the squad car around town to bring the kids here or there. And Well, one time, my grandpa was away, and my grandma had the, the sheriff's car, and she was driving the kids to a church picnic. And she's told this story many times. And so little Stevie and Mary are in the back seat, and there she is driving to the church picnic. Well, 
uh, all of a sudden, she looks in the rearview mirror, and wouldn't you know it, here comes a guy coming behind her just a little bit too fast for her liking. So she watches him, and I could just see her. She's tough. I could just see her getting a little more irritated because she's got two little kids in the back. Well, sure enough, the speeder pulls around her and zips off down the road. Well, she wasn't really thrilled with that, so flips on the lights, flips on the sirens, and she chases him on down. She pulls him over, and I could just see her hitching up her skirt as she gets out of the car. Marches up there, gives the guy a ticket. And the best part is that the next day he came in and he paid it. And here's the thing. My grandma's not the sheriff. (laughs) But she had the authority of the sheriff, or at least the guy thought she did. My grandpa said that later he uh, deputized her, so when she did this all the time, it was legal. She had the power and the authority of the sheriff. In his name, she was able to pull over this guy and say, pay the ticket. You don't mess with me in the car on the way to the church picnic. But there's also a little bit of a danger there when we're talking about the authority of Jesus Christ. My grandma wasn't the sheriff. And you're not the sheriff either. You're not God. We have the power and authority that Christ gives to us but we're not God. It's another trap that Christians tend to fall into. They equate the power of Christ and Christ's authority with our ability to tell God what to do. People that misunderstand spiritual authority believe that simply claiming something in the name of Jesus Christ must mean then it's God's will because we're so equal to Jesus. Not quite. It may simply mean that God is still in charge and his answer was no. We don't claim to be God. God is still in charge, but he arms us with what we need for the very real spiritual battle. Number one, authority, and number two, the full armor of God, which is what the last chapter of Ephesians talks about, the full armor of God against the evil and deception of Satan. Have you ever been unarmed? There's nothing worse than feeling unprepared or unarmed. Did you hear about this in the news about three weeks ago? There was a woman out in uh, Vail, Colorado, a grandmother. Okay, she lived in a basement apartment and a bear broke into her house. Did you hear about this? So this woman, this grandmother, is in her basement apartment and she hears something out in the kitchen. She goes out there. There's this 300-pound bear that had broken into her apartment and is kind of ransacking things and sees her and starts coming after her. Well, she runs into the bedroom. What does she grab? A decorative pillow. There was a picture of this on the news. No kidding. She grabs this decorative pillow off her bed and starts beating at the bear. And then she calls upstairs to her son and that there's a bear in the house. And he imagines that it's probably a bear cub that they've been seeing around their property. So he gets a bath towel because he's going to come downstairs and he's going to get the bear. And he comes down and there's a 300-pound bear after his mother. Well, they lock themselves in the bedroom, call the police. Everything is okay. But a decorative pillow... Paul is saying to the Ephesians, don't fight the enemy with your sad little defenses. Don't fight the enemy with your pathetic little ideas of how you can fight the enemy. Put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. He says, this is what's available to you. Put on the whole armor of God. So what's he saying practically between all these symbols? Could we, we could go through each one. There's a whole sermon in each one of these parts of the armor. 
What's he saying though? He's saying no scripture. He's saying be obedient, be prepared to share the good news, have faith and pray in the spirit. You can pick apart this whole chapter of Ephesians word by word and you see a huge teaching. He says, put on the full armor of God. I won't go through the whole thing because we'll be here for nine years, but I'll just do a sentence to show you the idea of how deeply you can go into this. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on. In the Greek, it's an imperative. It doesn't say, stand there and the Lord will blessedly put armor on you. No, it says, put on the full armor of God. Read scripture. Go to worship. Be surrounded by accountability and community. Have faith. Know that you have the peace of God to share the gospel. Put on the full armor of God. You're responsible for it. It's not going to save you. Don't fall into works righteousness where if you put on the full armor of God, then you're saved. No, 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 no. If you know Jesus Christ, you're saved. But then, darn it, put on the full armor of God to protect yourself and to move forward. Put on the whole armor, the full armor, the full armor. Not part, not the part that's convenient, not the part that's comfortable. Not the part that works in your schedule, not the part that works with your family or your small group or your church or the part that you like best. No, put on the full armor of God. Well, I don't really like to pray. I'm not one of those prayer people. Put on the full armor of God. Well, I'm not a Bible reader. I mean, some people like the Bible and I just can't get it. Put on the full armor of God. Be obedient. Well, that just gets so churchy. Put on the full armor of God. The full armor, not part. You can't know truth and not be obedient. You can't be prepared to share the gospel and not trust in your salvation. You can't have faith without prayer. And here's the most important part. Put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Not the full armor of Molly. Not the full armor of Howard. Not the, not the full armor of Mark. Put on the full armor of God. It's his. Not yours. It's his design, his idea Not yours or mine, our idea of what the full armor is. It's his. Put it on. See, what stops a lot of us from putting on the full armor of God is that we're too encumbered with our own armor that we've sort of put together to protect ourselves or to move forward. Our own way of defending or fighting the wars around us. In my research on... uh, armor in the past few weeks i found out something kind of interesting have you ever wondered why military uniforms are always so tight and why armor was so fitted partially it was so people could move around uh quickly but military historians have discovered across cultures that one of the reasons that armor and battle wear was so fitted is so that traitors and deserters couldn't put another change of clothes underneath So military uh, leaders, the commanders, could uh, run their hands down the uniform of those fighting and assure himself that the fighter was loyal to the skin. And it's kind of that way with God's armor. Before you can put on God's armor, you may have to lay down your current suit, whatever that is. So what's your current suit of armor this week? Knowing that you have God's grace and that God's grace is for you. He wants you. He loves you. And he wants and loves you so much that he wants you to have his full armor. What in your life is your own suit of armor? What have you set up for yourself so that you don't need God's defenses? For some of you, the suit of armor is, uh, is your own control. You don't need the full armor of God against the enemy in your life as long as you have your daily planner. Or your Blackberry and complete control over your spouse's Blackberry and your children's calendars. I got everything under control. 
I don't need the full armor of God. Maybe for some of you, your armor is staying spiritually or emotionally distant from being real. You don't need God's protection or power because, well, frankly, it would be admitting that you need it. Maybe for some of you, it's your intelligence or your wit. You think, well, as long as, I I mean, I understand this stuff. And for churchy people, I mean, they get this. It's sort of like a crutch for the weak sort of thing. But I mean, I have my intellect. I mean, I'm an educated person. I don't need all that religious kind of fluffy stuff. Or I mean, I'm into it, but all the kind of prayer. And when people get really religious, I mean, come on. I mean, I'm a smart person. I can kind of explain that stuff away. That's armor. God says, oh, I have the truth. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you become a Christian. There is deep truth. There is deep intellectualism. There is deep understanding behind what it means to be a Christian and the, and the history and the truth of Jesus Christ. For some of you, that's your armor. You just kind of explain it away. For some of you, maybe your armor is an addiction that's sort of rusted onto you and you need help to get it off. For some of you, your armor is false religiousness. And pride. You even look like you've got God's armor on because you know how to kind of knock together armor that looks pretty close to the authentic stuff. Because you do all the religious things and all the armor of God, but you know, you got it at the dollar store instead of from God. Or maybe, maybe for you, your armor is just simply pain or fear or pride that won't let you lay down your own plan for God's because you're so afraid that God won't make good on his promise that his armor will protect you, his armor will give you courage, that his armor will protect the identity that he's given you already because it starts with grace, it starts with his identity and he says, now I want to protect that. Now I want to give that a job because I love it. I love you. So trust that his armor is impenetrable Lay down yours, pick up his, not because you've got to, but because you get to. You get to. He starts with grace and salvation, and it comes with a job description, and that requires a sword. Amen. Let's pray.